With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I'm Dave Hellman. We are here once again for your week 11 preview. We've got your one-stop shop for all things NFL heading into week 11. We're going to talk about two huge division matchups, AFC North, NFC North, things getting real in each division. We're going to break down the biggest Monday night football game of the year for you and plenty else before we do any of that, though. Let's take a look back at a sobering, injury-plagued Thursday night football game. The delivery, not quite as good as the anticipation heading into this one. Let's make sure we give the Ravens props. Look, things happen in football. You, you play the game in front of you. You play the circumstances. You're dealt. You win the game. The Ravens improve to 8-3. and three. They will be guaranteed to be on top of the AFC North for another week, no matter what happens elsewhere in their division. But the big story of the night, injuries, lots of them, lots of significant ones, none more significant than the loss of Cincinnati quarterback Joe Burrow to what head coach Zach Taylor called a sprained wrist late in the first half. Joe Burrow dishes out a touchdown pass to Joe Mixon in the flat to give the Bengals a 10 to 7 lead with just under 6 minutes to play in the first half and you can see him grabbing his throwing arm after the touchdown pass maybe cause for concern not sure how serious the situation is Amazon telecast shows replays of Burrow getting tackled earlier in the drive maybe he hurts his wrist like Zach Taylor said it's a sprain the real cause for concern though comes when the television cameras show Burrow on the sideline a few minutes later trying to throw a football, trying to warm up to go back in the game. And in the act of throwing, he drops the ball and grimaces as he's trying to bring his arm forward. Seen consulting with staff, seen going back to the locker room, coming back out. He finishes the game on the sideline. Don't want to speculate too, too much, but when the star quarterback, one of the faces of the entire NFL is in so much pain trying to throw a football that he drops it and is done for the night after that. It's hard not to have bad vibes. I don't know what else to say. There's not, you know, recording this right after the game, there's not a a good way to know a whole lot else. Zach Taylor did say it's a sprained wrist. Hopefully the weekend off helps. Hopefully this isn't the beginning of a very long absence for Joe Burrow. I know 
Twitter and and the internet, there's there's a controversy brewing about a video that shows Joe Burrow arriving in Baltimore with some sort of sleeve or or brace, whatever you want to call it, on his wrist on Wednesday before the game. I suppose there's there's going to be questions about whether the Bengals knew his arm was injured. I personally don't really worry too much about it. Joe Burrow clearly, I mean, he took all of the practice reps in the short week leading up to this game. If he was remotely healthy, he was always going to play. That's how football players are wired. I'm personally not so much worried about that as I am just about Joe Burrow's health. This is, again, one of the best and most visible players in the NFL. He's Cincinnati's best hope for putting together a viable run at the playoffs. I'm not sure I see this team going anywhere meaningful without him. So, Again, I, I'm not going to speculate about it. I'm just going to wish Joe Burrow uh, a speedy recovery. Hopefully, this isn't something that derails his season beyond one night. But it was unsettling to watch him not be able to throw a football. That is what he's paid two hundred and seventy something million dollars to do. It wasn't just Burrow, unfortunately, though. I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure the Ravens will point out to you injuries happen in this game. There's a 100% chance of them. They lost star tight end Mark Andrews to an ankle injury on the first possession of the night. And though maybe you had some hope that this was going to be okay because he was able to hobble off to the sideline, Ravens head coach John Harbaugh says afterwards that it is a likely to be a season-ending injury. Haven't seen specifically what it was, but I'm going to trust the head coach at his word that this is a significant loss. We may not see Mark Andrews again this year. Obviously, I don't need to say that that is a blow for the Baltimore Ravens. Mark Andrews, one of the best handful of tight ends in football. He's been the most consistent thing about the Ravens passing game for the last five years. Second on the team in receiving yards heading into this game. Easily first on the team in receiving touchdowns with six. He had two catches for 23 yards on the first possession of the game. Looked like he was heading toward another big night when he was tackled down in the red zone, done for the night. The list doesn't end there. Lamar Jackson, a series or two later, tweaked his ankle. He seemed to be okay. He finished the game, but it did seem to bother him at at times during the night. He kind of slid and stumbled a couple of times on scrambles against the Bengals. So, like I said, he, he finished the game. He seems to be okay, but something to watch when one of the most explosive quarterbacks in the league injures his ankle. Cincinnati also lost budding star cornerback Cameron Taylor Britt to a quad injury. They lost defensive tackle BJ Hill to a knee injury. And even with the game well in hand, the Ravens led this 34 to 13 before a garbage time touchdown to Jamar Chase. Even with the game well in hand, Odell Beckham injures his shoulder after a long gain. We'll get more to Odell's big night, but the broadcast says he's taken to get x-rays toward the tail end, kind of puts a damper on his 116-yard night, his first 100-yard game since the 2021 NFC Championship game. So Odell Beckham really starting to hit his stride, and then he injures his shoulder. I'm I'm choosing to believe it's a good sign that that Beckham was healthy enough to do the the post-game show with Amazon afterward and go out and talk to the broadcast crew. I'm sure the Ravens are are hoping that that his tests and evaluations come back clean, especially losing Mark Andrews. For the season, hope potentially, at least according to John Harbaugh, you're going to need something else. Obviously, Zay Flowers having a fantastic rookie season, but you're going to need something 
to supplement the loss of Mark Andrews. Odell Beckham has had moments this season. He actually seems to be warming up a little bit. Touchdowns in back-to-back games heading into this one, and then he blows up for 100 yards. He looked explosive. He looked shifty. He looked like the guy we remember from when he was a New York Giant and even a Cleveland Brown. That could be a big deal for the Ravens, and there's no time like the present for him to keep it up if Mark Andrews is out for the rest of the year. Okay, I think that catches us up on all of the drastic injuries. I mean, it's not just that guys got hurt, but we're talking about guys that'll have a huge impact on both of these teams' seasons. In the meantime, the actual game we watched saw way more of Jake Browning than I think anyone was anticipating seeing all season. The Bengals' backup quarterback out of the University of Washington had one career attempt when Burrow exited. He enters... He throws for 101 yards, hits Jamar Chase for the garbage time touchdown to cut it to 14 points. That comes way after the game was out of hand. Honestly, I don't think Browning was bad given the circumstances, but it just goes to show how hard it is for an NFL team to win and particularly against the best opponents with a backup quarterback. I think the Bengals had roughly 90 yards of offense without Burrow. Their longest game Without or gain, excuse me, without Burrow was a 34 yard defensive pass interference flag. Underthrown ball by Browning gets bailed out by DPI, and that set the Bengals up for a field goal. Up until garbage time when the game's out of hand, that's about as good as it got for the Bengals. That's why I say if Burrow is out for a lengthy amount of time, hopefully not, but Bengals are now five and five, and it is hard to imagine them doing a whole heck of a lot better if they don't have their quarterback. My goal is not to take credit away from the Ravens. Like I said, deal with the circumstances you got, and they were dominant in the second half. They bled. They go to halftime with an 11-point lead. They bled the second half out. There was never any doubt after the injury that they were going to pull away. But it's just a storyline you can't ignore. Has a tremendous impact on the outcome of this game. It's going to determine everything about the rest of the Bengals' season. We'll see what happens when when he gets back from injury, but the schedule doesn't exactly let up. You got another division game right after this against Pittsburgh, road trip to face Jacksonville. So that's two opponents that are well above 500. Hopefully you'll have Joe Burrow to help you out. As for Baltimore, just stack them up, man. Doesn't matter how you get them. Eight and three on top of the division. They face the Chargers next. Sucks to lose Mark Andrews, but if you get Odell Beckham going in this passing game, I think you probably feel pretty good about that. I think you'll feel even better if you can get left tackle Ronnie Stanley back. This is where the Ravens typically are at this time of year. They've done a good job of getting well out ahead of the pack in this part of the season. The interesting thing here is going to be finishing in years past. Unfortunately, it's been Lamar Jackson getting injured. Hopefully that won't be the case. He avoided injury tonight and the Ravens get a big home win in the division. They'll be happy with it any way they can get it. Typically, our goal is to preview the Sunday slate where most of the games happen and save Monday for later, but we're going to step outside our comfort zone for a game of this magnitude. We're going to dive into Monday Night Football this week. How could we not when it is one of the games of the season, a Super Bowl 57 rematch, the Philadelphia Eagles heading to Kansas City to face the reigning champion Chiefs, just played a thriller in the Super Bowl, what, nine months ago, and they are once again two of the best teams in the league. This game's got it all. It's got the two all-pro quarterbacks from last year. It's got two of the best rosters in the league. 
Taylor Swift and her family might make an appearance. This thing has everything. And to break it all down, we brought in my good buddy, Fox Sports NFC East writer Ralph Vacchiano broke down the entire matchup with me for Monday night. Go ahead and check it out. All right, Ralph, let's start with the obvious really quick. I mean, arguably the game of the year, Super Bowl rematch, all that good stuff. You're down in Philadelphia. You're at the NovaCare complex to, to get the skinny on everything this week. I know the Eagles have played in a ton of big games, but what are the vibes? I mean, does it does it feel to them? Does it feel in that building as big as it feels everywhere else? Yeah, I think it does. They're trying to downplay it, of course. They don't want it to be um, anything more than just another game. We know that that's not exactly the case. Um, you know, there was a lot more media wandering around than normal, um, which certainly adds to the vibe. And a lot of questions, of course, about the Super Bowl, which is something that they don't necessarily want to relive. But, you know, they even talked about how to, to prepare for this game. The Super Bowl wasn't all that long ago. There haven't been that many changes to either team. So, that was the film they really had to watch, like it or not, to prepare to play the Chiefs. So they had to sort of suffer through that and, you know, put the emotions aside and, you know, get out their frustrations and, and try to learn lessons. So, you know, they get it. There's there's no avoiding it. They understand that this is a Super Bowl rematch, that the stakes are high. Um, I don't think there's any way that anybody can completely put that uh, in the back of their mind. I've never enjoyed the idea that this is an opportunity for revenge because at the end of the day, the trophy stays where it is no matter what happens on Monday night. But yeah. like, I mean, like you just mentioned, it wasn't all that long ago and these two teams are, are arguably the best two in the league right now. Maybe it's not an opportunity for revenge, but does it feel pretty clearly like the winner of this game should be viewed as the best team in the NFL coming out? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, they, they did say a lot in the locker room that, you know, look, no matter what happens, we can't get the ring. We can't get the trophy. It's and the past is in the past. But win this game and it makes you feel a little better about things. So, um, you know, th that's certainly a factor for them. I think they understand that a lot of people expect that these two teams are on a collision course in the Super Bowl again. They'd like to prove that, uh, you know, they can finish the job that they started uh, back in February. So, you know, I, I think they, they seem to have the proper perspective that, yeah, the winner of this game is probably going to be looked at as a Super Bowl favorite. Yes, they'll be looked at as one of the best teams in the league. No, that doesn't erase what happened in February. It just sets the stage for what they think, hope, will be a rematch again this coming February. I don't think the league could have timed this any better. Clearly, clearly an intentional decision to have both teams go on their bye before this game. And it, it worked to perfection from that standpoint. It looks like these teams are about as healthy as you could expect two teams in November to be. I want to start with the obvious one. Jalen Hurts isn't on the injury report, but I'm sure at the facility there have been a bunch of questions about that knee and, and how he's looking heading into this game. Yeah, and a bunch of non-answers as usual. Uh, you know, he didn't have his brace on in practice, which is a good sign, but of course it's still only practice. Um, it, he says that the bye week came at a good time. He's feeling a little bit better. The progress has been made. So all the right things, uh, you know, I think he needed some rest. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, how hurt he has he been is always sort of hard to tell because there are moments like in the last game where he limped off the field and everybody got really quiet in the stadium and then he ran right back on and, you know, ran a few plays later and uh, obviously is still playing at a pretty elite level. So um, he definitely needed the rest, but, He's been playing through something 
all season long. And, uh, you know, chances are that's probably going to continue. Which go building off that, I think this is, it's an underrated thing that seems like it could be a big deal to me. A lot of headlines about Nicobe Dean being placed on IR, but what I'm reading is that a guy who's got a great shot to replace him on the roster is Cam Jurgens, the right guard. Do you, do you see him playing and, and how big of a, of a difference might it make to have the Eagles offensive line that much stronger in this game? Yeah, you know, I think that they are hopeful that he will play. Um, he was certainly trending in that direction. Um, you know, their offensive line hasn't exactly been bad in his absence, but he's a starter for a reason. You know, it was they were a better running team when he was in there, and Jalen Hurts was protected better when he was in there. So when all their parts are together, they're that much of a, a more whole offense. So they're certainly hopeful that, that they will get there uh, in time for the Monday night game. The one guy they're missing that I think they they really worry is going to hurt them is Dallas Goddard, their tight end. Uh, last year when they lost him for four or five games, their offense was never really the same. He's the one guy, I think, when you look at their roster, especially on offense, that if he goes down, they don't really have a capable replacement for him uh, this, that can be that kind of receiver, be that kind of blocker. So they're without him at least for a few more games with that broken forearm. Um, you know, They think there's a little bit of concern of how they're going to replace him and what the offense will look like. But Look, if they can get Ken Jurgens back, um, you know, that fortifies the blocking part of it a little better than it was before. It's a great point. And I, I think of the Eagles as a team. They just, they do what they do and they do it really well. Obviously, you're absolutely right. Losing Dallas Goddard is a huge deal for this offense. But would you expect them to just lean that much more heavily on on A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith? Or, or do they try to pivot? In my mind, I imagine them just, leaning that much harder into what they do, which is is get those guys open and get them the ball. But do you see something different, maybe? No, I think that's what they'll do. Um, you know, even early in the season, they weren't getting the ball to Goddard, you know, nearly enough, in my opinion. And uh, I think that was one of the reasons why the offense stagnated a little bit. But there is so many other things that they do well. Um, you know, they were riding A.J. Brown uh, to a record pace for a while. They haven't really gotten the most yet out of Devonta Smith, so they can lean on him too. Um, you know, their running game when it gets going, especially they hope uh, Jurgen's back, um, they, you know, they can get that going again. There's just, they're so deep and so good that um, while losing Dallas Goddard takes out one element, they have plenty of other elements that can keep them going. And, you know, the Chiefs offense, you know, if they were rolling the same way they were at the end of last season, you know, maybe you'd be a little bit more worried about it, but they don't look exactly the same as they had been either. So, um, you know, I don't know that I think they'll feel Dallas Goddard in the terms of they're going to have to figure out ways to work around him or uh, him not being there. But I, I think the Eagles offense in general should be fine. It's a perfect transition mentioning the Chiefs. I know you're not in Kansas City, but the big the big talk around this offense is is finding somebody else to make plays besides Travis Kelsey when Travis Kelsey can't do it all by himself. But I'm curious with what we've seen from the Eagles defense, do the Chiefs need somebody other than Travis Kelsey? Can the Eagles slow down what the Chiefs do best, which is get the ball to their all-pro tight end? Well, that's a good question because the Eagles' coverage this uh, season has not been terrific. Um, you know, obviously, if they can get pressure on a quarterback, that certainly will help, although Patrick Mahomes is so good outside of the pocket. I don't know how much of a help is in that game. Uh, you know, the Eagles are very hopeful that their uh, trade deadline pickup, Keith Byard, their all-pro safety, 
is a guy who can really stick to Travis Kelsey and cover him. Uh, you know, we spoke to him in the locker room and he was praising Kelsey. You know, even his coverage of him has been good at times, but not great. Kelsey's just not a guy that you can completely stop. So, um, you know, I think the advantage that the Chiefs will have, I'm sorry, the Eagles will have in the secondary is if you're looking at the Chiefs receivers, boy, you could really focus all your attention on Kelsey. You can double him up and maybe you know, roll your coverage towards him all game long because none of the other receivers on the Chiefs really scare anybody. So I would imagine that Travis Kelsey is going to get all of the attention from Bayard, from everybody else in that secondary, and you know, stopping him will be the focus. I had to laugh. I saw Kevin Bayard was talking to you all about this matchup, and you know the irony, he's obviously very used to playing the Chiefs from his time in Tennessee, and you turn right around and you get him one more time as a member of the Eagles this time. Elsewhere in this matchup, another thing I want to touch on, last time we saw the Eagles, you know, I, I think statistically at least, maybe their pass rush hasn't been as as absolutely dominant as what we got last what we got used to last year. But they obviously gave the Cowboys fits in that win against Dallas before the bye week. Murdered Terrence Steele in particular, one of his worst days in recent memory. This seems like a favorable matchup to me, whether it's Donovan Smith on the left side. Jawan Taylor's also been a guy that's gotten a lot of scrutiny for Kansas City. Is this Eagles pass rush picking up steam and heading toward the second half of the year? I think so. I think, you know, it all depends on how we judge them. If we're going to judge them against the the defense that had 70 sacks last year, they're probably not going to measure up. It was one of the highest totals in NFL history, but it's still pretty good. And they still do get pressure, even if the sack numbers aren't necessarily there all the time. And they also have a knack, as we saw in the Cowboys game, of getting the sacks at the right time instead of dialing up constant pressure like they did last year under Jonathan Gannon, or at least they tried to. Sean Desai, is, as their new defensive coordinator, is a little bit more selective sometimes in how often he'll really bring a heavy rush. And certainly in the key moments, you'll see they're able to do that. But you know they do have a lot of really good guys that can get after the quarterback, whether it's Hassan Reddick or you know Jordan Davis and Jalen Carter in the middle or Brandon Graham when he's worked in there. Um, it's still pretty dangerous and can be pretty relentless. So, yeah, I look at this Eagles-Chiefs matchup and think, that is a way that the Eagles can turn things to their advantage. But again, pressure on Patrick Mahomes doesn't always work. You you put it perfectly, and that's what I was going to get to. It's, I think I think that's the first time we've said the name Patrick Mahomes in this game preview, which goes without saying. I'd, I'd say he's he's the best player in this matchup, having a, a predictably great season. I think by anybody else's standards, you would consider him an MVP front runner, but it kind of feels like he's hanging in the background for no other reason than in my opinion, than that the expectations for him are so high. If Patrick Mahomes gets loose for a typical Patrick Mahomes game, does it feel fair to say he's, he's right back in the thick of that MVP favorite conversation status that we're so used to. I think he should be honestly. I mean, I agree with you that I think he gets overlooked and a lot of that is, you know, we get used to what he does. Um, we look at the numbers and, okay, they're they're really good for him. They're normal Patrick Mahomes numbers. And we see other guys and think, wow, that's spectacular. But in the end, you know, I think Patrick Mahomes has that kind of staying power. If he has big games against teams like the Eagles in a nationally televised showdown, it's going to open up the eyes of some people. And especially when they see the receivers that he's working with. He's putting up these numbers with a group of receivers that just wouldn't rates with most of the other uh, teams in the NFL. Obviously, Travis Kelsey 
is a big advantage. I'm talking about the wide receivers here. He seems to just always make it work. Um, so, yeah, I think a big game here against this defense, and uh, I think that people are going to have to start to give him a second thought in that MVP chase and at least watch him the second half of the season. I, it sounds so silly. I agree. I completely agree with everything you just said. Like, if it's somehow possible to overlook a guy that's already won two MVPs before the age of 30, it feels like it's happening. But and and to be fair to Jalen Hurts, I think the same thing applies for him. I mean, whoever whoever wins this game, particularly if they have a great game, is going to be back at the forefront of that conversation, particularly with the struggles that we're seeing from guys like Josh Allen elsewhere in the league. So all of that is on the table. Ralph, I saved the most important stuff for last, the hard-hitting stuff. Is this the most high-profile meeting between a boyfriend and girlfriend's parents in league history? And do it look, Taylor Swift has a private jet. Like, do we think she will make it back from Brazil in time for kickoff at Arrowhead? Well, you know, it sounds like from what I've been reading and hearing that they are expecting not only for her to be there, but for the parents to meet for the first time, the Kelsey's and the Swifts. And, uh, you know, I, I said this on Twitter, if um, ESPN wants to televise that instead of the game, they'd probably do triple the ratings at this point. So um, I, I'd like to tell you that I don't care, but the reality is we were talking about it in the locker room and Andy Reid even got questions about it. So yeah, I, if there has been a more high profile uh, off the field football matchup, uh, I certainly don't, remember covering one this is uh this is pretty big time <laughs> i i saved it for the end so that the football heads could fast forward if they wanted to but like <laughs> don't don't lie to me america like the numbers are what they are like the numbers speak yeah. for themselves i i mean god god bless the the kelsey's and the swifts i think usually when this happens it's like over dinner you know like in a in an intimate right. setting instead of with however many tens of millions of people watching but I can't wait for the game. I'm sure it's going to be a fun one. Ralph, as always, man, I appreciate the time so much. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. There was drama in the AFC North on Thursday night. There will be plenty more on Sunday afternoon. A rare weekend where the entire AFC North is in play together in week 11. In the early window, the Pittsburgh Steelers traveling to face the Cleveland Browns. And, oh, y'all, do I love a, a stinky line from Las Vegas. And this one just feels fishy to me when you see that the Pittsburgh Steelers, winners of four of their last five games, one of just two teams in the NFL with both a positive record and a negative point differential, that that feels like a key here. They're a one-point underdog to the Cleveland Browns, which, okay, sure, it's in Cleveland. That makes sense. They're a one-point underdog to Dorian Thompson-Robinson. The day three draft pick who's taking over as QB1 for the Browns after the news broke this week that Deshaun Watson was undergoing season-ending shoulder surgery. So, I don't know. Maybe it's me. Common sense dictates that the Steelers should be the favored team in this game. The people who decide those things out in Las Vegas say, not so fast, Dave. Something, Something interesting brewing. And I've got to be honest. Okay. I said it earlier this week. I'm a little bit surprised the Browns didn't opt for veteran quarterback P.J. Walker. He's been the guy that they turned to since the DTR experiment. Didn't work out against Baltimore. When when Watson's injury issues really flared up and became a multi-week thing, that's who they turned to. And it it worked. Don't get me wrong. Not saying Walker's 49% completion percentage 
or the five interceptions in three games is is good. He is a veteran guy. He did play well enough to beat the 49ers and helped beat the Colts coming in in relief. And it weighs pretty heavily on my mind that DTR suffered through a very forgettable debut when the Browns lost to Baltimore 28-3 all the way back in week four. Now, friend of the show, Peter Schrager, pointed out earlier this week, this is a totally different circumstance. Dorian Thompson-Robinson knows he's the starter. He's known all week since since Watson's surgery was announced. He's been preparing that way. It's a little bit different than week four when he was thrust into the job on moment's notice. It, It is a different circumstance, but it's still a hell of a challenge for a fifth-round pick to jump into the midst of the AFC North and the Pittsburgh Steelers, TJ Watt, Cam Hayward, all that fun stuff, all the physicality and mystique that comes with this division and these rivalries. Seems like a lot to me. Not that I have to strap up and play. That's doesn't seem like the Browns are worried. They're still the number one defense in the league. They have arguably the best defender in the league, defensive player of the year candidate, Miles, uh, Miles Garrett. Cornerback Greg Newsom basically warned people, said, go ahead and jump ship if you're doubting because of the Watson injury. He said, you'll regret it. So let, uh, let that sink in for a sec before, before you even worry about who wins this game. Just remember, the Cleveland Browns are three games over 500 in the month of November, and they are confident that they can complete a playoff run without their franchise quarterback. It's not improbable. Maybe not, not, not probable, but it's not impossible to think. Remember, the other side of this thing, the other side of the league, it's possible that Super Bowl 58 features the Cleveland Browns and or maybe one of the Detroit Lions. We live in an amazing time. And I just pause in the midst of a, of a crazy season to remember the Browns and the Lions are two teams that you absolutely should not write off entering the home stretch of the season. Love it. Can't get enough of it. Big storyline for me. The winner of this game jumps to four games over 500 with seven to play. The math is in your favor if you win this game. Of course, seems like somebody's always due for a December collapse, but winning this game puts you in a very favorable position to at least make the playoffs. This is a tough division to win but at least make the playoffs. According to the New York Times, the Browns' chances to make the postseason jump to an astronomical 95% chance if they win. It's all the way down at 65% with a loss. So a, a very massive swing. A loss would put the Browns uh, in, in a hole in the division standings, whereas a win for the Steelers put them at 3-0. and They would have swept the Browns. They would already have a win over the Baltimore Ravens. If the Steelers win, according to the same math from the New York Times, Steelers win would jump them up to an 80% chance at the playoffs. It's just a coin toss, 50% if they lose. This is very much a season-swinging type of game. Seems like a theme for the entire weekend in that division. Who's in and who's out? I will tell you this. The Cleveland Browns injury report is long. 14 different guys on that roster, working through something. And please remember, everybody in the NFL is hurt at this time of year. Most of them are going to play. A lot of them aren't even going to pop up on the report. November in the NFL, not a not a fun time for the guys that actually have to play the games. But vast majority of the guys on the Browns injury report look like they're going to play. Denzel Ward suffered that neck injury after 
colliding with Ronnie Stanley in, in the win against Baltimore. He looks like he's trending toward playing. Same thing with guard Wyatt Teller, tight end David Njoku, offensive tackle Dewan Jones, Greg Newsom, who I just mentioned, Grand Delpit. Did I mention there are a lot of guys banged up on the Browns? Famous last words, I know, but it's they're all trending toward playing, so keep an eye on that if you're a Browns fan or a fantasy football player, but the vast majority of those guys, I think, are going to be available. Big issue here for the Steelers is that Minka Fitzpatrick still not practicing as of Thursday night. Never rule out an all-pro caliber player getting ready on short rest, but that hamstring injury seems like it's a pretty big deal. That's a big blow. I think even on a team with TJ Watt, I think you could make the argument Minka Fitzpatrick, if he's not Pittsburgh's best player, he is right there in the mix as one of the best, one of the smartest safeties in the league. Having him going against a rookie quarterback would definitely be an advantageous situation. On the bright side, tight end Pat Fryermuth with a hamstring. Looks like he's going to be available. I think I said that a few weeks ago and he wound up getting downgraded. So please don't, don't use what I said on Friday as your fantasy football advice. Keep an eye on, on your, on your phone as we move into the weekend, the matchup to watch for me, the big stat that jumps off the page, in my opinion, Mike Tomlin, longtime head coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers. One of the best in the business. 25 and five against rookie quarterbacks since he took over as the Steelers head coach. That was quite some time ago, 2007 to be exact. Over that stretch, Steelers have the best winning percentage in the NFL against rookie quarterback quarterbacks. Mike Tomlin knows how to make a layup. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Another thing that's worth keeping in mind, Steelers are blitzing at the fourth highest rate in the NFL. 37% of the time, they're sending people after the quarterback. I would imagine they're going to do that against a rookie making his second NFL start. Do need to stop the run well enough to focus on that. Rushing the passer is a privilege. Steelers run defense hasn't always been fantastic this season. Stop the run game well enough to force DTR into passing situations. And I guarantee you, Mike Tomlin and his coaching staff are going to have some, some fun little tricks prepared for the rookie. Like I said, just his second start. Weird line, weird game. I lean toward the Steelers. Vegas says I should think again. I'm guessing it's going to be a good old fashioned fashioned rock fight. That's what it usually is in the AFC North. Can't wait to watch it. All right, let's look ahead to Sunday. And we're going to start with a game that I think is actually a heck of a lot better than it looks on paper. That is the Chicago Bears going up to Detroit to face the division-leading Lions. Lions, one of the hottest teams in the NFL, coming off of a thrilling win against the Chargers. And yes, the Bears' record's not great. There's no way around it. But plenty of intrigue in the fact that Justin Fields is returning to the lineup for the first time in a month after injuring his thumb. Plenty of intrigue in this NFC North matchup. I caught up with the guy calling it our own NFL on Fox analyst Mark Schlereth walked me through it. Check it out. All right, Mark, Bears head up to face the Lions this weekend. I feel like if you're joining me on the show, I got to start here. If you turn on one snap of that Lions win against the Chargers last week, it's just play after play of the Lions blowing the Chargers off the ball on the offensive line. As a guy who did it at a high level for a long time, what's your favorite thing about the Lions offensive line and the way they're playing right now? Um, well, they're physical. They they do everything well. And 
Uh, the bottom line, though, is that physicality. They're such a talented football team, so they can beat you a myriad of ways. And they've got a lot of players, whether they're the two running backs, you know, Gibbs and Montgomery, or their receiving core, which is very talented. Their rookie tight end, Sam Laporte, is, is a phenomenal young player. I mean, phenomenal. But the bottom line, when you talk to Dan Campbell, he'll tell you, we've built this team inside out. The strength of our football team, the backbone of our football team is our offensive line. And when you ask him point blank, which I have, who's the best player on your football team? Penny Sewell, without hesitation, best player on my football team. Um, and so that's how they've built it. That's what Dan Campbell wants. He wants to control the line of scrimmage. Um, and, and they can do that. The thing is, is, you know, they're so incredibly balanced, the way they throw the ball, um, how they get guys in wide open space and get them the ball on the run. Um, they're very creative. Ben Johnson, their offense coordinator, he will be probably – I think he'll be a head coach next year. Uh, I think he'll get that opportunity. He's he's done a phenomenal job with that offense, with Jared Goff. But make no bones about it. The bottom line is they're going to try to bludgeon you. And, um, you know, they'll do it. They'll sneak you because they're so good offensively. Like I said, they're so skilled. But they're going to try to bludgeon you. As a matter of fact, here's case in point. They had a fourth down and five last week against the Chargers, and they ran an inside trap on fourth and five and converted like you know how you know how much how ballsy you have to be to, to run a trap inside right. trap on fourth down and five that i mean that is 100 all balls so you know tip of the cap to dan campbell what he's established there and that guy knows i mean he was a he was a he was a glorified he played tight end but he was a glorified offensive guard that's what he was and uh he understands the value of that he understands the value of physicality and so that's that's the way he's established his football team. And I'll tell you what, they are a fun watch on film, man. They do everything well. I want to get to Dan Campbell being incredibly ballsy in a sec. So I I I, I okay. want to stick with that. But sticking on the on in that vein of conversation, I mean, you played on some amazing offensive lines. I get that. I mean, the NFL is physical regardless. You got to be confident to play in the NFL regardless, but does it what does it do for for the confidence of a locker room when you know that you can kind of dictate the terms of a game with an offensive line like that? Well, I think one, the locker room becomes very confident and you become very confident as an offense. And you know, one of the things I think you have to understand is there's a, a difference in physicality from one team to the next team. And you know, that physicality travels. Uh, it doesn't matter where you play. It doesn't matter when you play. It doesn't matter the time zone, whether it's a Monday night, Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, doesn't matter. It travels. And so when you have that, you know that you can be in every game. The other thing that happens to you when you're an offense that's predicated on finesse and throwing the ball, when you fall out of rhythm, and this is just a voice of experience, you fall out of rhythm, it is hard to throw yourself back into a rhythm. It really is. But when you fall out of a rhythm as a team that knows that they can run the ball, you line up with two tights, two backs, and you bludgeon people. Just bludgeon them. And then you make them get into single high safety formations. You make them bring a safety down to defend the run. You make them play, you know, low to low to deep. And that's when your play action stuff opens up. That's when you get one-on-one access to the outside corners versus, you know, versus uh Wide receivers, either go routes or, or uh, you know, back shoulder fades or comebacks. Like, that's when you get that access outside. That's when you get back to dictating. So anytime on teams that I played on, we fell out of a passing rhythm. 
we just get big and and go to beating you up. And once we beat you up for a while, now it's easy to start creating some easy throws, some some easy access throws for your quarterback and get your quarterback and your offensive passing game back into a rhythm. Which, I mean, it, it seems like it plays out every week for these guys. And you mentioned Dan Campbell's ultimately responsible for it at the end of the day. And we, I mean, we've known yeah. since his introductory press conference, he's a fiery guy, he's a former player. But, I mean, he he backs it up remarkably well. And I, I know they went for it on fourth down five times against the Chargers, but they lead the league across the entire season. How do you think the Lions respond to, I mean, I, I get that he's fiery, but he backs it up every single week too. Oh, there's no question. I mean, he's authentic. He is who he is. And I will tell you this, you know, he uh, he's like our own Gronkowski, you know, our own, <laughs> own Rob Gronkowski. He plays the role of meathead well. But he's an intelligent dude, right? He's a really smart guy. And he's a really intelligent football guy. And he just understands, like, that's who he is, man. He was a grunt laborer. He understands that. He understands the importance of that. And um, and he plays into it. He leans into who he is. And one thing I've always said about NFL coaches, like, you can be quirky. Like, look at the difference between Mike McDaniels and look at the at McDaniel and, and look at the difference between, you know, Dan Campbell. Like they couldn't be more polar opposite, but the bottom line is they're both authentic. And as long as you're authentic and you're real and you're relational, your players will respond to you. And that's, you know, that's, I always say this and it doesn't matter what business you're in, whether you're in the podcasting business, the television business, whether you're in the radio business, the football business, if you're not in the relationship business and all those things, you're going out of business. And, um, and we see it all the time, you know, we see it with coaches that get fired. We see it with guys that just don't relate well or are not authentic. You know, they, they try to be somebody they're not once they get that opportunity to be a head coach. And that's one thing I really respect about Dan and his coaching staff, man, they're a hundred percent real. Um, you know, it, there's no sugarcoating it. This is the way it is. And, um, I really respect that about Dan Campbell and, and what he's built in Detroit. You walk into that building there's some buildings you walk into and you just feel like oh, I'm walking on eggshells or, you know, you can't, man, you walk into that building and that building is, I mean, everybody is just on point having a good time, but you know, it's all business, but they're having a good time there. Like they like, they like being in that building from front office people to the coaches, to the players, to the equipment guys, they like being in the building. And that's a direct reflection on their head coach. As a player and a broadcaster, you've been around the league for a long time. How how rare is it to be, especially all due respect to the Lions, in a place like Detroit where wins have been hard to come by prior to this, how uh, hard is it to create a culture like that? Especially, like you said, one that seems to be so authentic. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the most difficult thing you do as a coach is to create the culture of your football team, um, the culture of your organization. And you know, it's easy to preach things, um, you know, and say, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to be. This is the way things are, are, are going to go. And then, you know, you present it once and then you never talk about it again and, and you never lean on it again. And you acquiesce when things are hard and you do things easy, the easy way out. And, and like that builds a culture of what do I have to do to get a C? You know, I mean. To me, it's about living it every day. Culture is not static. It's alive. 
and you got to live it every day. You got to preach it every day. You got to model it every single day. And if you don't, the players don't buy into it. And so I think that's, I think that's really the big thing. And even when last year, you know, they started off one and six or whatever it was, and then, you know, one, um, eight of the last 10, or I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was something of that nature. Even when you went in there at the beginning of the season, and I did their first game of the season last year, um, you could tell it was different, man. You could tell the players bought into what Dan Campbell was selling. One last thing I want to hit on the Lions, and that's just, I'm not sure people are giving enough credit to Amon Ross St. Brown and the season that he's having so far this year. It's mm-hmm. only He's only fallen short of 100 yards once this season, four straight 100-yard games. I know there's... There's more great receivers in the league than maybe there ever have been. But what what specifically impresses you about Amon Ra's game? Um, that dude is tough. He's like he's not a wide receiver. He's a football player, and that's the ultimate compliment that they, that I can pay him. Um, what do you need me to do? I'll do it. And does the dirty stuff, you know, catches the bubble screens, goes over the middle constantly with deep overs and dig routes and you know things, uh, you know, basics and. Like he does, he he catches the ball in traffic and then run out to the catch stuff. He is tough. He is fearless. Um, he'll run, you know, jet sweep stuff. He'll do whatever you ask him to do. And he does it all exceptionally well. He is a, like I said, uh, he's just a football player. Like he is not, in my book, he's not a wide receiver. He's a football player. And that's what makes him so good. And he is one of the best um, at what he does. No question about it. And like, and, and the other thing, Again, I'm, I'm just going to – some guys play out there in the water. You know, they stay out, outside the numbers, and, and, that, and that's all you ever see them. And, and, you know, they're going one-on-one against corners. This dude does the dirty work. He is a dirty work player, and I uh, absolutely love watching him on tape. I think going back to what you were talking about with the culture, I feel like that describes a lot of the guys on the Lions roster, and I'm not sure that's a coincidence with what Dan Campbell's all about. Over Agreed. On the, over on the Bears' side of this thing – I, th- I mean, it, it starts and stops with Justin Fields. It's, it looks like he's going to be back against the Lions this week for the first time in a month. We know it's going to be an evaluation heading down the second half of the season. What are what are you looking for? You know, when, when Justin Fields returns to the field, what do you want to see from him over the last, well, in this game, obviously, but over the last six or seven weeks of the season? I think the biggest thing is consistency. I think the other thing you have to figure out is, can he... Can he operate an NFL-style offense? We've seen him be exceptional when he's, you know, running the ball and when they're running the RPO game and when they're running, you know, the the, the quarterback uh, zone read stuff and the quarterback gets to keep it in some of the quarterback runs and all that kind of stuff. And he is an exceptional athlete. Um, but can you operate from the pocket? I, I think we, I think we all kind of assume that and, and kind of have this feel that. Running that style of offense, that collegian style of offense, uh, the sustainability is not there for the long term. And Justin's missed plenty of time already in his young career. And so I need to see stability from the pocket. I need to see a guy that can operate an NFL offense. And I need to see a guy that can that can be okay with the boring. Like you want to be good in the NFL, you've got to be okay with the boring. And I'll give you an example. I'm talking to Byron Leftwich. This is last year doing a Tampa game. Um, he's the offensive coordinator with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the time, operating with Tom Brady. And I said, what is it that sets Tom Brady apart? And he goes, 
that dude will take the first read in the progression. If it's a four yard flat route and it's open, he will take it 100 out of 100 times. He doesn't deviate. And most quarterbacks will look at that flat route and go, yeah, but let me see what the curl looks like behind it. And then by the time they get back to the curl or the flat route, the guy's already out of bounds. You know, he's already, he stopped or whatever, or he's covered. And so he never gets bored with the boring. And I need to see that out of Justin Fields. I need to see consistency out of Justin Fields. I've seen the splash. I've seen the big time throw. I've seen some things that you're like, wow. And then I've seen the rest of it. And the rest of it hasn't been good enough. You know, I always I always think of Justin Fields. The first time I really studied him at a Bears game, and I thought of Justin Fields like I thought of my golf game. And and that is, I can pipe a drive 320, and it could be the most beautiful drive you've ever seen. And then I can shank three shots in a row and and have three putt and and walk away with an eight, you know, or whatever that math is. I'm, I'm not a math major, but you know what I'm saying, right? Right. And and I'm like. I don't care that I, I drove the, the heck out of the ball or hit a great second shot. Like you've got to put your entirety of your game together. So it's that 320 yard drive that keeps you going. Wow. Justin feels well, if he did just do that. Well, he can't, that's the thing. He can't just do that. Or he hasn't been able as of yet to just do that on a consistent basis. And that's what you need to see from fields. You need to see some consistency because you're right. They have to make a decision. And I, I don't think they can make the decision based on let's let him run around. Let's run the RPO game. Let's run. Like, I don't think that's the way you make this decision because I think you can get a false sense of security doing that. I think you've got to operate from the pocket and operate, you know, a big boy kind of more NFL style of offense. And, you know, we'll see if he can do that. I think that's, that's so perfectly put. And yeah, I mean, the guy's highlights are up there with anybody's, but I think what, what will set this apart is, Maybe the plays that that get hidden when you're just looking at a box score, right? How well you can right. be efficient, keep the offense moving. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Mark, you will be there for the start of it. I really appreciate the time, man. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, man. Have a great night, Dave. You as well. That just about does it for the show. I say just about because we still have to get through the most frantic few minutes of the week. You know the drill. It is time for what we call the hurry-up offense. There's still... 10 more games to get to on the week 11 slate. We are going to take you through all 10 of them, give you a nugget, give you an interesting tidbit to get you ready for it, get you on your way as quickly, as efficiently as possible. My wonderful producers, as they always do, are going to give me three and a half minutes, and I'm going to get you through the rest of the week as we head towards Sunday. Let's start it off in Miami where the Las Vegas Raiders are going to face the Miami Dolphins. I love, love, love the vibes in Vegas under interim head coach Antonio Pierce, but let's keep it real. The two wins so far have come against two of the three worst offenses in the NFL. That's the New York teams, the Jets and the Giants. If the Raiders can win in Miami or even compete, just be competitive. Dolphins, best offense in the league, leading the AFC East. Devon Achan, the sensational rookie running back, he's coming back. 
compete in this game or dare I dream win it. And I will take the Raiders much more seriously as a playoff contender. Titans at Jaguars. I don't know if beating Will Levis and the Titans is going to make anybody forget about the Jags losing by 30 to San Francisco. But right now, Jags, be more concerned with holding off the Texans. They are coming in the AFC South. They are coming up the standings. They already beat the Jags once. Worry about style points later. Get a key division win against the team you should beat at home. Chargers at Packers. Maybe the cure for an inconsistent offense is a bad defense. Green Bay hasn't topped 350 yards of offense in almost two months. But the Chargers, 27th in defensive DVOA. They're not good. Given up 450 yards four times, 500 yards twice, including 500 yards last week against Detroit. Maybe this is the breakout opportunity people are hoping for from Jordan Love and his young receivers. And again... Packers are 23rd overall in defensive DVOA, struggling against the run. Not what you would call a wonderful unit in their own right. I'm just hoping for points here at Lambeau Field. Hopefully this one's as goofy as the stats suggest it could be. Cardinals at Texans. You couldn't really write off the Cardinals when Josh Dobbs was starting at quarterback for them. So you damn sure can't rule them out with Kyler Murray back in the fold. As he already proved against Atlanta, could be three straight shootouts for Houston, Tampa Bay, and Cincinnati. This could be another fun one. Texans are looked at as a favorite now. They're at home, but let's not give them too much credit too soon. This one could be tough. Cowboys at Panthers. People will call this a trap game. I, I don't know when we've seen the Panthers display enough firepower to compete with a team like this. I don't take that seriously. Even if Dallas looks ugly, it's hard to imagine a world where they actually lose this game. Of course, please play this back for me on social media when I'm wrong. Problem for Dallas is you're not going to shut up any naysayers no matter what. You might as well win convincingly. I don't see much of a shot for Carolina. Giants at Commanders. Tommy DeVito is a really cool story. I'm just not sure how watchable the Giants are right now. Sorry. Having said that, Commanders already lost to him once. Watch him mess around and do it again. Buccaneers at the San Francisco 49ers. Problem with Tampa Bay for me. They're simply too one-dimensional on offense. I don't trust the Bucs to run the ball well enough to threaten the Niners. I like the Buccaneers. I say it every week. This game on the road, I like the Niners to win it fairly comfortably. Jets at Bills. Jets are 5-5. Five and five. Jets have switched offensive coordinators in the middle of the week, and now Stephon Diggs is debating with the media about what his brother's tweeting on social media. Imagine, like, as bad as this is, imagine how bad it's going to be for the Bills if they manage to fall below 500. For the sake of the people covering that team, I hope it doesn't happen. Seahawks at Rams. Do not allow yourself to forget the Rams already won this game in convincing fashion. I know week one was a long time ago. These aren't the same teams. Matthew Stafford's back, though. I'm just saying crazier things have happened. Rams are only a one-point underdog. Let's wrap it up. Vikings at Broncos. Shocker of shockers. People were making fun of this matchup two weeks ago. I Okay, there's the buzzer. I know. People were making fun of this matchup two weeks ago. They're two of the hottest teams in the NFL right now. Vikings on a win streak. Vikings averaging almost 30 points a game since Josh Dobbs got to town two weeks ago. The Broncos haven't allowed more than 22 points in more than a month. What a surprisingly good nightcap. I can't believe I'm saying it. Yes, I am excited to watch the Vikings take on the Broncos. That does it for the show. I came in close enough that I don't feel bad about it. We will be back one way or the other, no matter what happens. We're back Monday to break down week 11 for you. We will have all the reaction from all the games. And of course, we already previewed it. We've got Eagles Chiefs on deck. Not often the very best game of the weekend coming on Monday night. So we will have plenty more to say about that. Please, in the meantime, go find us on Spotify. Go find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube. Find the subscription button. Please do it. 
We will be here Monday to break everything down. We will get ready for the big one in Kansas City after that. Can't wait for week 11, y'all. I'll catch you soon.